This podcast episode is sponsored by me. I'm Ethan Freckleton, a mindset coach for author entrepreneurs. I help author entrepreneurs to achieve a sustainable, flexible, profitable business without all the burnout and overwhelm. Learn more by visiting ethanfreckleton.com forward slash mindset. Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. What's my story? In 2007, I was divorced, in debt, stuck in a soul-sucking job, desperate to have a meaningful, fulfilling life, but not sure where to begin. I made a simple choice at the time, to start honoring my yes and to start speaking my no. Consequences be damned. After all, how could my life possibly get any worse? I began the long path of becoming a professional songwriter finding my fearless voice along the way. Now, I'm living my dream life as a husband, father, and professional storyteller. Hello, fearless storyteller listeners. This is another imperfect take, which is something of a bonus episode. Um, I'm not supposed to be doing this, but I've kind of started writing in bits and pieces my next nonfiction book. And this is a portion of a first draft I wrote. And of course, with first drafts, the goal is to not so much to get it perfect, but to get it down. And that's kind of my philosophy with the imperfect takes as well, is not using perfection as a barrier for me to get my ideas out there and communicate and connect with you. So here we go. This is a portion of a secretly titled book, Ego, Taste, and Craft. I started out playing bass in rock bands. As I remember it, I started writing songs without any particular intention. It was fun, but also I was drawn to the feeling of writing and performing something of my own. Early on, I'd go to Barnes and Nobles, and reach and search out songwriting books to read in the store. I probably read the Jimmy Webb book, but I had no idea if I'd heard any of his songs. And one of the first ones I took home, I believe, was called Six Steps to Songwriting Success by Jason Bloom, who is, incidentally, a future guest of the show, so stay tuned for that. Um, by the time I attended music conferences in Hawaii, I had the pleasure of attending Jason's workshops where he often introduces himself as Britney and Justin's first. He co-wrote both Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake's first hit songs, and what sets his teaching apart is his precise attention to detail and craft. Before I started studying with intention, I'd always assumed you just write songs and some of them turn out good. I bring this up because in the beginning, 
It was about the song. The songwriting was about exploring my own permission to create, exploring expressing myself with words. It was a period of creative play and growth. And every time I'd create something, I was so proud of what I'd done. I'd write a song I wanted to celebrate and shrine the achievement by placing it on a pedestal because it felt like an achievement to have expressed myself. In fact, I wanted badly others to know that I was doing this. I don't know if it's cultural or human nature to need validation, and I don't believe there's anything wrong with seeking attention as such. In fact, in the book Real Artists Don't Starve by Jeff Goings, he's pretty insistent that establishing a feedback loop for our work is crucial to our development as artists. I'm pretty sure it was nice when people gave me attention. I didn't write songs too often, but I must have had just the right mix of encouragement and self-gratification from doing it so that I wanted to do it more. It got to the point where I started my own band, just so I could play my songs and get more attention. I didn't have enough songs to front a band for the whole set. Uh, that was just way too much commitment. Instead, I invited a friend who had her own songs, too, to co-front the band with me. So that's what we did. We enabled each other to keep writing. Initially, the joy of coming together with others and creating music, getting better at our instruments, was just all fun process without a lot of pressure. Having someone to practice with is important, particularly in music, because there's this whole physical component to it which goes beyond the creative expression and lyrics on the page. We started playing shows and it was great having friends come to appreciate and encourage us further, but I don't know if I'd go so far to call it poison, but expectations started to creep in, you know? How can I do more of this? Because the whole process is intoxicating. And the knee-jerk answer to that, of course, was to get famous or signed, of course, and be able to do it for a living so that I could have the time to create music as much as I wanted to. The day job that I loathed became the scapegoat for not having meaningful creative work. Why was I so quick to turn my creative play into a professional aspiration? Was it money? Is it the allure of having hordes of fans and admirers? I don't believe it was so much money as the time that money buys. And that's still true of me today. Given sufficient time to create, I don't have a strong monetary drive. Of course, early into my day job career, I did a fantastic job of piling up obligations and debt to the point that the only way for me to sustain my lifestyle was to make more money. So, the fans, that was the stronger motivation. Even more than having actual fans though, it was about recognition and legitimacy. I wanted to be seen as being a peer of my rock and roll heroes. I wanted to be in the club. Which is funny, because I had little idea what I was doing and wasn't great at playing guitar, singing, or even expressing myself on the page. But I sure as hell could see the polished version of who I wanted to be. We call that ego. Which is one of those words we either embrace or get defensive about. We all know that person whose ego is too big for the room, and whether they're talented or not, goes a long way toward deciding how much we indulge them. I like ego, to a point, 
There's simply no way to sustain the drive to master an art form without developing and nurturing a healthy ego. Ego thrives on feedback and wilts under the harsh light of criticism. This is a bit of a paradox for artists of all types because we require both feedback and criticism to grow. The other speed bump for ego? Our taste. If you've been a long time listener of the show, and I say that with my tongue in my cheek because I've only been doing this for a year, Ira and I talked a little bit about taste around the time NaNoWriMo was coming up because this is one of our roadblocks we have. Writing and performing songs had a strong lure for me because I grew up listening to and seeing live music. My dad played bass and he even got paid for it, all while playing a mix of cover songs and originals. I couldn't help but be immersed in the art form. And because I got to be close to good musicians, my bar for what good enough looked like was high from the start. I developed a keen sense of taste taste, where the broad spectrum of Americana comes in. That was my taste. It was my taste expertise. We all develop taste when it comes to the things we love to consume. You mix taste together with the damaging mythology around prodigies and God-given talent. Many of us give up on creative, creating in the creative process way too early. We compare our first baby steps to those of the masters. And I'm ad-libbing here, but just imagine baby comparing themselves to Carl Lewis. Is that too old of a reference? How about Usain Bolt? I don't know. We should be comparing our baby steps to the baby steps of our masters. How did Carl Lewis walk when he was first learning? You know, he wasn't winning awards. You know, we don't want to compare ourselves to the steps that our heroes are taking right now. Early on, though, the distance between where we start and where our taste tells us to go appears immeasurable. Good thing for that ego, then. Ego acts as a shield. Sometimes it even blinds us to the realities of our work. Call this attachment losing objectivity. I'm confident that my ego told me my early songs were good. In fact, I readily confess that I believed my first complete short stories were good too. I even believed my first novel was good. As long as I had a little bit of encouragement to pair with my ego, I didn't need to look far for constructive feedback. I bring this up not to shame myself or anybody listening to this. If this is you, I want you to embrace and nurture your ego. But also, open yourself to the possibility that this journey is lifelong and best enjoyed with the occasional assistance of qualified tour guides. There's this other thing, this third thing we call craft, and all too often we don't learn what the term means as it applies to developing to developing aptitude in pretty much any skilled trade. I can confidently assert that until my mid to late 20s, I had little to no clue that craft meant anything more than practicing what you know. Craft is actually a lifeline. It's the thing that's going to save your sanity and keep you on the path toward creative mastery because craft is repeatable. I'll say that again. Craft 
is repeatable. You get what I'm saying here? Because this is worth repeating, right? Craft is repeatable. Look at me repeating that about craft being repeatable. With craft, you can learn to get good at almost anything in life, given the right teachers, the curriculum for you, and the right encouragement. For some reason, deeply embedded within our culture, we don't want to spend years getting good at a new skill. We want to be good from the moment we start. And even if we're unaware of how bad we are, we immediately start wishing we could quit that day job and start being a professional as soon as humanly possible. The foremost reason I have a podcast where I interview mid-career professional writers? Because I want you and everyone else who is listening to know one thing. We all start this journey at zero. We all deal with ego, taste, and the need for instant gratification. We all find ourselves coming up short of our own expectations. That's even when we start making money with our craft. Even when we start getting the recognition and the status we have always sought out. Taste is that one beast we never tame. Because even if we find craft, find the right mentors, and work at it diligently over the years, even if we achieve mastery, our taste does not remain static. As we develop and grow, our taste grows as well. Write this down if you have to, or take a note in your phone. Your taste will always exceed your ability. I'll repeat that. Your taste will always exceed your ability. And when you reach mastery, what you may not realize is that your talent has met or exceeded the taste you started out with way back when this journey started. You may actually be as good as your heroes were at this stage, but because your taste has evolved along with you, you're still striving to be better. You may even feel like an imposter. Even artists at the top of this profession I'm talking about any of the storytelling professions and anything else really. Everyone experiences imposter syndrome and it's my belief that taste is the culprit. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover the Fearless Storyteller podcast.